that wouldn't happen if we had an expectation for parents to be, in effect, the school. They are the ones that we serve. Those are the ones we work for. Their voices matter. And when we ignore them, schools go downhill. Student performances go downhill. Trust goes away. And then things start to come into schools that shouldn't happen. Welcome back to The Joe Mobley Show. I am Joe Mobley, your host and the original uncloseted conservative. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. We have, as always, an awesome interview for you today. And it's all because we have an awesome guest uh, who's a career law enforcement guy and went from law enforcement into the classroom uh, before Arnold did it, actually. For those of you that are old enough to get that reference, uh, career law enforcement, career educator, did some time as an administrator as well. And now he set his sights on something else. I'm going to let him tell you all about it. The one and only Mr. Mike Allers. Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Joe. I'm, t- I'm looking at the picture behind you. It's inspiring me. Good old walk. <laughs> Cross the Delaware, right? Looks like it there. It looks great. Just read, yeah. the bi- just read Chernow's uh, biography recently. So that's very timely. Perfect. Yeah, I, I got uh, a lot of artwork in here. This one's my favorite. I have um, uh, Kennedy's presidential portrait over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my kids. Uh, there you go. Yeah, pictures of my kids. Well, actually not pictures of my kids. Uh, what are these called? Uh, silhouettes. Silhouettes uh, of my kids. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it was like a first grade project. Yeah, it's a good yeah. one. Yeah. I'm so good. God, if you don't have silhouettes of your kids, listeners, get some done. They're super easy to do. You can just have your kid turn to the side like they got arrested, take a picture and, you know, trace it. Just trace it, cut out the outline. Boom. You got a silhouette. You can throw it in the frame. And it's just it's really a lovely thing to have there. You can do black and white or or whatever. Um, yeah. Man, what a low cost thing. See, you would you would be thinking arts and crafts from a school perspective. I didn't even remember doing that. Uh, but yeah, no, we totally did that in elementary school. It's, it's nice. That, well, you know what it is? There's certain legacy projects that grade has. So you walk in when you're a school administrator and they're like, okay, we're up to the silhouettes part of the year. You know, and but they are in my house as well. And I I bequeathed them to my two older boys. And my 18-year-olds is still in the house. So it's neat to see if the, how they've changed over the years, that silhouette. So it's, it, it, is, it is something that is timeless. And so it's excellent. I love it. So, so speaking of your kids, um, you know, we met recently. I knew who your son was for quite a while. We got sure. to meet just a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, the listeners don't know who you are. So tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us about your career. And then we'll dive into what you're getting into next. Okay. Well, um, again, you know my name. Mike Allers, right there on the screen. I'm a Long Island boy. So I was born back in the 60s. I'm the youngest of five. Uh, my dad was a World War II vet. Uh, lied about his age. Went into World War II around 15. And he was uh, actually was started out in the Merchant Marine and then wound up on a destroyer and wound up a chief petty officer before he timed out. But that's how I was raised. I was raised by a 
World War II patriotic vet that thought it was that important to get in at a young age. My mom's still alive. My dad sadly passed in 2009. My mom's still alive. She's a career artist, very creative uh, lady. That's how she makes her money. She's uh, an awesome artist. Some of her art has, uh, she has art in the uh, Oklahoma governor's mansion. Uh, she has art in different places around the country. So it's, it's pretty hard to be around her because I can't draw with the beans. So it's the way it is. But uh, that's how I was raised. I was raised on Long Island, blue collar family. My dad was a carpenter and we had those blue collar values. Um, my dad taught us hard work. He taught us all how to do carpentry. He taught every friend I had how to do carpentry because we became instant helpers and he had his own little crew. And he built thousands of homes, supermarkets, Burger Kings, you name it. So it was, a, it was great growing up and being around him. Uh, my siblings are scattered around the country. They do different things. I am the youngest. Um, so I'm the only one still in his 50s, which I do bring up. Um, at a young age, I was basically taught service. Uh, mom and dad were very geared into you making an impact in your community. Um, my family was all about, you know, I mean, as simple as shoveling the driveways for people around us or helping folks fix their houses, you know, put in a window here and there, fix a roof after a hurricane, which are pretty plentiful on Long Island. All those kinds of things. My dad said, let's go, let's get going. We're going to go help someone. And it never involved money. And so yeah. that in and of itself, you learn that is of you being of service. With that in mind, I wanted to be either in the military or on the police department. Um, I did look into being in the military. My dad was, dad and I, you know, went back and forth. Dad, what do you think? And he said, why don't you take the test for the police and see how that turns out? Now, getting on the police department that I had gotten on was very difficult. Thousands and thousands of people took the test and very few get on it. So it's out in Suffolk County, uh, about a 3,000 men, 3,000 uh, men and female job. It's a great job, uh, highest paid in the country at the time. So it was a really, really uh, unique honor to get on that job. I was on that job really uh, about five years. I got injured on the job. Uh, unfortunately, a doctor in treating an injury I had kind of botched it up. And I wound up getting two pulmonary embolisms uh, after a very simple surgery. And it took me out almost nearly off the planet. And I was retired. Uh, they do this thing called survey for retirement. They check off, okay, this guy has uh, a decreased capacity in his lung. He's got this, he's got that. We're going to retire so there I was, 27 years old, went to my high school reunion, retired, which was unusual. I made a beeline to the most likely to succeed and said, are you retired? He said, no. I said, well, there you go. I, so I was retired at my 10th year reunion. And then I, I was just feeling lost. I had, I had one child at the time, and I said, I can't sit home. What am I going to – I mean, granted, the pension was probably ample enough to spend my time staying home but I, I just couldn't do it. I wanted to give back to my community. So when I was a cop, I was often in schools. I was often around children at bus stops, things of that nature. I always had a good rapport with kids. And I said, you know, let me go into education. Now I'm a big believer in that little whisper of God's. It's not always that often uh, that he's whispering, but he speaks kind of loudly to me and pushed me in that direction. I can make an impact with children and again, be of service. I went out and got a master's degree in elementary ed, pre-K through sixth grade. Uh, that was subsequently followed by another master's degree down the road 
in school district administration, a superintendent's license and uh, such, so I could run school districts and run schools. And there I was off on a 28-year career, and I loved it. I taught kindergarten, second, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, life science, you name it. And I was a school administrator in five different districts. And so I was off and running, and that career just came to an end on Friday, the 13th. Um, difficult decision to make, but I did do it. It was time, uh, and I needed to do that. And now, after being a cop, after being an educator, I'm off on another venture. Again, God's whisper, because uh, I had originally thought of you know, retiring and saying, okay, honey, let's go live by the water or something. And God cleared his almighty throat and said, I don't think so. And he said, you need, you can make more of an impact with families, especially with this educational uh, issue or the educational issues that are currently going on in an elected office. And that's where I'm off to go. I'm off to go to Richmond. We'll start with Virginia. And Virginia really is in dire need of an educator at the General Assembly. We need an educator in that house and it needs to happen. And so I'm seeking uh, election to the 28th district, uh, which is uh, encompasses seven counties. I call them mag the Magnificent Seven. It's Spotsylvania, Orange, Green, uh, Madison, Culpeper, Rappahannock, and Fauquier counties. So it's uh, really at the heart of Virginia. And uh, it is certainly a microcosm of the bigger picture for Virginia with regard to the issues that are going on and the fact that parents currently feel so disenfranchised. So we need to give them a voice. Uh, I'm a fairly um, <laughs> active young you know, man, and I'm very pumped up about giving parents a voice in Richmond, making sure that they feel respected, making sure that they, uh, their problems are dealt with. And, it's just, and I'm not just stopping short at education. I'm not just going to be one of those guys who runs on, on a myopic view of what politics should be. I have all sorts of things that I definitely want to achieve and for all sorts of people, uh, quite a few individuals of whom I meet every day. So that hopefully uh, gives you a little flavor for who I am. I'm so also for uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say for the podcast listener, there's a huge podcast audience. Thank you guys for being here. You, you don't see this on the screen, but you can see it in the show notes. Uh, you can, you know, learn more about Mike and his campaign and his vision for the future and education reform in Virginia and beyond uh, by going to allers4vasenate.com. I'm going to spell it out because oftentimes there are numbers or other things in these uh, websites, but this is allers4vasenate.com, A-L-L-E-R-S-F-O-R-V-A-S-E-N-A-T-E.com. Guys, the link is in the show notes. It's in the description wherever you're watching. Um, but, you know, this year we're promoting the podcast. So make sure you like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. And while you're down there, go ahead and rate and review the show. As always, if you rate the show and you review the show and say, oh, Joe's so awesome, Mike's so awesome, uh, that's great. But we want to know something that you learned, something that inspired you or encouraged you in this episode. Uh, so you put something that Mike encouraged you, taught you, or inspired you with, and you will be entered in the monthly drawing to win a signed book. Uh, don't know which book, not next five moves, because I'm going to keep this one. This one's for me. Um, but, uh, maybe one of the Ben Carson books, he's a big education guy. Um, so maybe an autographed, uh, Ben Carson book, one nation or, 
Um, what are what are the other ones? I got a ton of autographed Ben Carson books. I got a ton of uh, other books. I don't think I'm going to give away the Shapiro book either, um, but maybe just maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe just maybe. So tell us something that you learned, something that inspired or encouraged you. You get entered into that drawing, and you get to you know catch up with Mike because his links down there <laughs> where you guys are looking. Uh, you know, it's it's really interesting. My career is one that kind of reads interesting as well. Um, but when you're a people person, a compassionate person, and you want to see people thrive and flourish um, and, and pursue and achieve excellence, it, it really makes perfect sense to go from, you know, something that's service oriented like law enforcement into the classroom. And I'm sure that you've had this conversation thousands of times explaining to people what what is that pivot about uh but it actually makes perfect sense and and guys i can tell you if you if you find mike on the street and talk to him uh this is exactly exactly the person you get who who's been on the podcast so far um just service and really making a better way for for children and their families. Um, so uh, I, I'd love to hear some about that because, um, you know, you talked about your methodology the last time we spoke, um, some of your methods of getting parents involved and achieving excellent outcomes for their kids. Guys, that's huge. That drives crime rates down. It makes it so that academic excellence is the standard. Kids are flourishing. Families are flourishing. That's how cities and states and nations flourish. Um, but talk to us um, about, about your methods in the classroom. Okay. You know, as far as how we, how we work things in the classroom and how I entered into education and my, and my kind of mindset, the paradigm, if you will, I wanted to do it. You know, you, we kind of have this thing in always in my classrooms and above my latest classroom that I just left, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. That golden rule, you know, and my wife of, of 33 years, Camille, and, and my three sons, you know, I always saw, I always wanted to be that teacher that I wanted my children to have. And I always wanted to provide that environment for the parents that I would love as a parent uh, given to me. So going into education, I recognized the fact that so many parents had a reluctance to come into the classroom. They just, there's, they may not have had a, a positive experience when they were students themselves. Uh, they may just, there's a certain intimidation there in coming into the classroom. So when I jumped into the school. Was this in both settings in New York and Virginia? Well, I taught, the first place I taught, actually, the first place I taught was in New Jersey. Uh, I taught for a year around Princeton. And uh, we didn't really, we couldn't really afford that area. So my career really, I jumped in at, uh, in Virginia as an elementary school teacher down in Southern Albemarle. And at the same time, I was actually working at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. So I had those two things going because uh, my first year in teaching, I think they paid me 31 grand. It wasn't great. So I jumped in. I invited every parent that I served into my classroom. Now, back in the 90s, it was a little easier to get parents in, but they were still they were well vetted. But I invited them in for one on one conversations prior to the beginning of school. What's going on with your child? What do you wish for your child to achieve? What issues might your child have that I need to know? What can we talk about? Now, what I discovered early on when I made that invite, a lot of parents were like, I'm, I'm not going to come in. I'm good. And I'm like, well, if you can't come in, I'm coming out. 
So I, I had their demographics where they lived, et cetera. It wasn't threatening. It was simply like, look, I really think this is a, an important conversation to have. You are the export, expert for your most prized possession, your child. Please, let me just sit on your front porch and let's just talk about your child. And you would not believe, you would not believe the credibility you instantly receive when you show that kind of interest in someone's child. Now, especially with kids with special needs, if you're having a conversation with a parent whose child has special needs, they just are automatically on the defensive. The system has kind of put them there. Oftentimes, those parents have to fight for their children to receive the accommodations they may need or develop an IEP, an individualized educational plan for their child. So they're used to a certain uh, you know, pushback on them and their child. So when you come out, you sit on their porch, you have those conversations, they're like, wow, this guy's a unique entity. This is different. And I had the comfort for, from ta- you know, to talk to people because I was a cop. I mean, you, you as an ex-soldier, I mean, you could just talk to folks. You could talk to the wall, right? We could talk to anybody. But our comfort with people is just a natural thing for us. And coming from New York, you know, you're surrounded by 8, 10 million people. You're used to talking to people. But the thing is, I just sat down and, and you know what? You listen and you just let folks talk and you take notes and you say, listen, you need to know how vested I am in your child. Now, that was like my first year or two. That's how it developed. From there, it went forward. I had this goal to always meet face to face with 100% of the parents I served. And I put them on notice right away. I said, look, don't, don't feel defensive. Don't, please don't, you know, feel intimidated. I work for you. You are my employer. These books, these desks, everything in this room is paid for by you. So that kind of carried on. I brought that uh, to different schools. And then certainly I was approached to be a principal. And as I told you before, I got that second master's degree in administration, school district administration, pre-K through 12, and subsequently a superintendent's license. And as a school administrator, I said, look, if I could do it in a single classroom with this 100% approach, it can be done school-wide. So for 12 straight years in different schools, I did just that. 100% of the parents we served received a face-to-face parent-teacher conference, and every single one of them were invited in. That turned into reading programs, early literacy programs, all these reading nights where I had 475 parents in attendance, thousands and thousands of people coming around your school. I built the playground strictly with parent help. All of this stuff because of that invitation of parents. And as a result, when we met with parent after parent, I explained how different things were going in school. We brought them in if they were having difficulty with the curriculum as far as how they taught their kids at home, be it division or whatever it might be, because there's some new techniques. We actually brought them in, sat them down and taught the parents how to do things at home. I made videos, division videos, multiplication videos, sent them home to parents and said, look, let's, let's instruct and help you at home. How do you read a book aloud to your child? Every month, we had these folks come in and I started out this reading program. Actually, it was, in a, it was in a school where we were bobcats. So I started this pause for reading program. And what I did was I thought the first night I was going to do it. I said, if I have 30 parents, I'll be pretty happy. The first night, it was at about 130. And I'm like, wow. 
And then I had to start getting books. So through donations, I got books. Then we built up to 475, 500 parents each time, every meeting, handing out books, teaching parents how to read aloud to their kids, handing out books, making literacy such a drive. And all of a sudden, Joe, boom, the data went through the roof. Kids' reading abilities just skyrocketed. Parent confidence skyrocketed. The school became the, the hub of the community. And it just gained in its popularity and, and prestige. But it wasn't that, that wasn't the goal. The goal was allowing these ch children to succeed and building a program that could be, couldn't be beat. And that's how you do it. You can't do it without parent involvement. And now we have these parents. I mean, look at Governor Youngkin, right? He was catapulted into the governor's mansion because parents were so disenfranchised up in Loudoun. That wouldn't happen if we had an expectation for parents to be, in effect, the school. They are the ones that we serve. Those are the ones we work for. Their voices matter. And when we ignore them, schools go downhill. Student performances go downhill. Trust goes away. And then things start to come into schools that shouldn't happen. And so that's, that's what goes on. I mean, that, it's not a very, I mean, it, it sounds, you know, maybe it sounds to folks like, oh, that can't happen. Yes, it can. You need to hire people that know it can happen. And you need to hire folks that expect that success. You know, you can't hire oh. someone. So we can go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I love it because it doesn't always, it seems like the problem is really complicated, but it doesn't mean that the solution has to be equally as complicated. And you went in and you said, you know, basically three things. I need to help these students. I need to serve their parents because the students belong to the parents. And I need to do whatever it takes to get that done. And that's what you did. And so many people leave that out. Paul Lott and his organization have done a ton of research looking at the the disparities between um, kids that have really good education outcomes and kids that don't have good education outcomes. And one thing that he found is it didn't have to do with race. It had to, some of it had to do with uh, 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 economic demographics, not racial demographics, sure. because, you know, poor white kids in Baltimore uh, were failing and dropping out the same amount as poor black kids in Baltimore. Uh, but one of the things that he found, because he was diving deeper into the data was the relationship with the parents and the parents' education level, but exactly what you said, their confidence and their ability to help the child achieve the academic outcome. And you look at these Harvard kids and they learn how to study or how to read or how to uh, move you know, systemically through a book or a curriculum. They learn that from their parents who had good education habits. If they don't have that, then they're kind of crap out of luck. But you said, no, 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 that's not enough. I'm making videos. I'm making things to send home to the parents to let them know, hey, you can help your child. And they they probably learned a lot. They probably learned a lot about how to go through a book or about how to how to do division. There are so many people that can't do any type of math without their phone. Um, so man, what, what an awesome story. And, and you know, it worked out very well. And the thing is, I, I hear you with the socioeconomics, but the school that I just retired from, is the poorest school in Orange County. It's hmm. the number one performing school in Orange County. The number one, it's not That's even- That's awesome. They won't even advertise how, <laughs> how, how good it is. I mean, they gave us awards recently, but they just won't even give you the actual numbers because it's just not even close. And it's because <laughs> of the teachers. Uh, they're all on board. 
So if you put together a team of folks who are like-minded, it could just take off. And the thing is, again, those parents, like those Harvard kids, if you look at the, um, the schools across the nation, especially colleges, that make the most impact for socioeconomics, the schools that do, the number one college in doing that actually is UCLA. UCLA is a public college. It brings kids from down here, socioeconomically, to up here. Harvard, you come here and you stay here. Yale, you come <laughs> in, you stay here. These other schools, so there's actually a great book called The Public School Advantage. And I'm not just touting public schools because I understand people's reluctance with that. But the public school advantage is the fact that socioeconomically, kids can come from a position, you know, like my parents. My parents didn't even graduate high school, okay? I'm the first male in my extended family to even graduate college. Most of us are tradespeople, which is fine. They're all killing me financially. But the thing is, um, I was the first one. But the thing is, you can come from a family that had a rough go, that had, you know, poverty, historical poverty in, in many cases. And the school I serve isn't just, you know, the minorities that are uh, functioning that way. There are, it's a very diverse population. And most of them are from the same socioeconomic background. And you could bring those folks and embolden those parents. And they want their children to boom. They want their children to be uplifted. And if you teach them how and you take it on and you don't condescend and you are, look, you're my partner. I am as vested in your child as you could be and are. It's the, the payback is incredible. And that's it's an energy. It's a, it's a passion. I'm sorry, I actually get nuts about this, but I really, really want this to be something that's infectious. And our politicians know nothing about it. You know, they yell at all things about education. We need to fix the educational system and rots, blah, blah, blah. It's not the educational system. It's what who we're hiring. And these higher-ups don't have those expectations in the school districts. Teachers do, but the higher-ups don't. They're pumping an agenda or whatever. It's the latest flavor. But most of the teachers I know in my 28 years really are vested in children and they get a bad rap. So, but um, I understand things are going on. I'm not blind, but you know, that passion for kids and making them successful. I want someone, you're a young man, but I want someone to take care of me in my older years. And we're educating tomorrow's caretakers and doctors and lawyers and cops and teachers. And if we don't have that realization where we're striking out. Guys, eight out of 10 Americans are completely dissatisfied with work, miserable, and they hate going into their job. This is a nut statistic. I can't believe so many people live that reality, especially since there are more jobs than people. That means it's actually easier for you to get into the career of your dreams, to get that dream job. This is something I can coach you through. No matter the company, the industry, no matter your education, qualifications, or experience. Guys, I've built a successful career in more than five different industries. I was always promoted ahead of my peers. I was always put in positions of more and more responsibility and leadership. This is something that I can help you achieve for yourself. Guys, you know and love me as the host of The Joe Mobley Show, and now we can have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with me as your career pivot coach. All you gotta do is jump on a discovery call with me and see if this is the right move for you to make in 2023 and why this is the best time. Book that discovery call, go to thejoemobleyshow.com slash coach. 
That's thejoemobleyshow.com slash coach. Book a time today. Guys, my time is limited. The spots are gonna fill up and then I'm not going to be able to coach you immediately. I'm gonna have to put you on the wait list, but you're gonna do the right thing. You're gonna go to djmobleyshow.com slash coach right now. I'm sure this wasn't going on in your schools. There, there are some strange trends occurring with educators and i i took a note on my super high uh my super high tech note-taking apparatus here is what we <laughs> use at the joe mobley show we use post-its instead of scripts <laughs> tack it to the screen because that's how we roll ah see mike i knew i liked you um you know the first half of the interview you spoke so much about service and it goes, you know, your your father's mentality, your mom's work ethic, and gets ingrained into you to the police force. And then you're looking for essentially, you're not looking for a new job. You're looking for a new opportunity to serve. And you land in the classroom, and um, in the classroom, and as an administrator, and and you're doing all this different type of work. But the way that you spoke about it, and I don't know, you're probably aware that you do this. The way that you spoke about it was. How can I serve the students? How can I serve the parents? And essentially, how can I serve these families? There seems to be this weird trend going on. And I know it's a minority. Um, and I'm here in Loudoun County. I was one of those mad dads. I was working with Fight for Schools, Army of Parents, all of the groups, uh, you know, packed Parents Against Critical Theory. I was in all of the groups because I believe in education. Education has transformed my life and my family. Um but there's this minority of educators, if, if we can call them that, teachers, educators, um, a handful of administrators, sadly, who their relationship has shifted between serving the parents to, to kind of almost taking ownership of the children, not in the appropriate way. You know, violence is going on on your mm -hmm. watch. You intercede. You are the intercessor for the students and, and even for the faculty. Uh, but what's going on with that? Or, or what, what can you say about this shift that's happening with the small percentage of educators? Guys, we're not trashing teachers. Teachers need support and they need parents' help. No, well, well here's the thing. Um, this hasn't been something that's new. It happened in 20, 2020 up in Loudoun. But the thing is, it's a 50-year-in-the-making kind of movement, okay? Mm -hmm. And the more parents have to rely on schools with regard to two people working, incomes, the difficulties with the economy, the more they then have to rely on daycare, pre-Ks, you know, uh, whatever it might be for their kids to have caretaking during the day. So that kind of led to that. The taking advantage of that, okay? So it was Head Start programs started, I don't know if you're aware of the whole Head Start program, but when the Head Start program started back in the day, in the you know 60s, 70s, the model was to give single moms jobs so they could come into the schools, come into the Head Start program, and learn quite a bit about educating little ones. The other thing was originally the Head Start program was to give these kids from kind of fractured families a sense of family. Truly, they had this design for kids eating a meal at a table, all these kind of really you know, good intention things that were originally the game plan. Now that's kind of pulled away and Head Start parents, you know, leave their kids at the Head Start program and go to a work program. They may go to work or they may not go to work at all. Then there's parents that need to find a, a really good program starting at almost birth nowadays. People have kids 
you know, the mom might be able to stay home for eight, 12 weeks, and then they're back at it. They're about, you know, making a living. So schools have become, whether through intention or not, surrogate parents. Now there's gonna be poor intention people in all of these programs. And when you have an, uh, really an audience of kids from almost birth up to 18, there's gonna be folks who are gonna see that as an opportunity to tell kids what to think. My whole goal has been geared toward teaching kids how to think, not what to think. But there's always gonna be those, those folks with that, that ill-conceived bad plan that they're gonna go, look, we have a captive audience. These kids are gonna be voters in 18 years. We have 18 years to bring it along. And so that Biden mentality that we own your kids is something that parents have to realize could go on if they're not focused on what is happening in their schools. And that is exactly right. You said some bad players. Yes, it's not the high percentage of folks, but it clearly comes from the fact that there's an audience of children there that could potentially be voters and of a mindset that agrees with what they're being taught. And it's that indoctrination happens. And it's unfortunate. So it is something that we have to make parents aware. We have to be open. We have to be honest. We have to be, pardon the, the overused term these days, transparent, 100%. This is the curriculum. You have a voice. What do you think? This is our program. And, you know, it's still important to have folks come into school. You know, we use the school districts, a lot of school districts, simply up in Loudoun, use the pandemic as that you can't come in. You know, you're not allowed in here. You got, you know, where we have to stay free from parents. And they took advantage of that, those bad players. That's another problem in and of itself. And as a result, 60,000, 70,000 people left public school over the last X amount of years because they're like, forget it. We don't trust you. You're not inviting us in. And that's where it comes into play. So we need to hire a, a, certainly a state board of education. We need to have a, a state superintendent and politicians saying, we work for you folks. We're going to have open houses ad infinitum. You're going to know exactly what we're doing. We're not pulling the wool over your eyes. We're not trying to con you. This is what we're teaching your child. And it's going to be a classic education. It's going to be reading. It's going to be writing. It's going to be arithmetic. It's going to be communication. It's going to be socialization. It's not going to be somebody's political band, a political venture, whatever it might be. That's where you, you put the, you crush that by being omnipresent as parents mm. and you rest that out of their hands. You got to rest education out of the hands of the left who are bad players in this situation. So I'm someone who believes in meritocracy and and individual achievement which means that we've got the big scary a word that means individual accountability guys um so i got up on the screen here this mark twain quote where he said i have never let my schooling interfere with my education um which is an excellent an excellent quote it's an excellent thought to have um especially there there are so many minority students um or uh, students from low socioeconomic, uh, you know, conditions. So, you know, students in poverty. Guys, I just want to remind you all, two heroes of mine, obviously uh, prominent black leaders, but really just think of them as American heroes, Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass. Both of these men born into slavery, they come off of the plantation and they had two goals. Their goals were 
to maintain a family. That means marriage and, and, and fathering their children and being a good husband to their wives and education. And both of these men had to teach themselves how to read, which is nuts. I'm, I'm almost, I almost am grateful daily that I was born into a situation where there were people around me to teach me how to read. The, the key to unlocking the universe, the, the key to connecting with God, if, and, unless you're one of those people out in nature who just gets it, oh, someone mm -hmm. made all this. Um, but the, the key to academic excellence to learn any skill, any craft, whether you want to, you know, innovate toiletry and, and make new septic systems or you want to make the next rocket or heart surgery, reading is, is the way to do it. Um, so, you know, it's not, not cramming down people's throats, but how do we how do we get that to graft to people's souls that they need to develop a hunger for learning and for reading? And it's going to change everything for them, not for us. So Frederick Douglass said, once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. Frederick Douglass also said better to build a strong child than fix a, a broken man. Right. He talked about mm. the. So when we look at that, I can't believe you brought up Frederick Douglass, huge, huge Frederick Douglass fan. And so um, what we need to do is early literacy is something that doesn't happen by mistake. Now, I, I live every word of my advice. All three of my boys, even my one son who has a hearing difficulty, uh, processing issue, all read at three years old. How is that possible? Well, people like to tout this thing called the science of reading. There's no science to it. Readers read. Readers learn from their parents. You break down that code, you teach them step by step, you show them. Now, it's, it's, it's somewhat organic if you grow up in a literate household. My dad would hand you the newspaper and outline the article you better read by the time he gets home from uh, work. I mean, that was just how he grew up. My dad just digested novel after novel, book after book. We had encyclopedias that he did side jobs to buy. I mean, that's how I grew up. We went and he wanted us to know about everybody. You showed Twain. We had to read Twain. We had to read the writings of Abraham Lincoln. My father was just like, look, this is how you do it. Now, here's where we're having a disconnect with kids. And to your audience, this is going to sound very preachy. Folks, your kids are too plugged in. You're not going to read by playing video games. It's just destroying kids' attention span, and it's taking away their ability to get this done. It requires quite a bit of cognitive energy at the early set, at the onset of reading, especially those early literacy years. And that cognitive energy needs to be focused into reading and decoding. And then you have to, as they get older, they learn to write, they learn to encode. So you need to make sure that those kids are well prepared. Now, what I did was in, in the schools I've run, at one school in particular in Madison, Virginia, we took the money that we received from Title I. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Title I monies go to lower socioeconomic schools. So we had Title I monies. And we looked specifically at how our kids have benefited over a longitudinal study in a long period of time regarding how they received the uh, tutor, tutor uh, not really tutoring, but the extra help from the reading specialists. And we said, you know what? Let's try something different. Rather than approaching these kids with their reading difficulties in first grade, second grade, and third grade, whatever, let's approach it and have the reading specialists go into our pre-K. And we expanded our pre-K with Title I money. So we now had three-year-olds and we were targeting the reading approach 
and the, the necessities and the instruction for reading at that age, early literacy, making sure they had a concept of word, those kinds of things going forward, the alphabet, all those things, letter sounds, all those early things at three years old. Now, within four years, our data went through the roof. Our second graders were all reading fourth grade, fifth grade level. And it wasn't magic, Joe. It was simply getting kids at a younger age. It's like teaching kids how to swing a bat at a young age. And all of a sudden, they're great in Little League at seven years old. It's not magic. It's all practice. But when we have kids come home from school and their parents just go, okay, go to your room and plug into whatever game it might be, you lose them. You're losing great time together and you're losing that opportunity to help your kids succeed in school. And if your child sees you as a reader, your child will become a reader. It's just one of those things. It's the same thing with bad habits, right? Child sees you smoke, really good chance the kid's going to smoke. So the same thing with bad habits. So good habits are the same exact thing. And we need to look at those folks. We need to champion the attitudes of Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. And we need to talk about the fact that this reading opens up things to you that you could never have dreamed of. You could be whatever you want, but it all starts with literacy. And it really, truly does. It, and it really does, yeah. So, I mean, any any line of work, what, what can you do? You can't drive a car without being literate. I mean, you could start it up, but you're going to go through whatever sign it might be. You need to, <laughs> you need to understand that the world comes with rules and you need to read them. And the other thing is it makes you an active citizen. It makes you someone who can then be a better parent. And I think some of the best times I've ever spent, my sons became crazy readers. And, you know, it starts with that where the wild things are. And it starts with the next years of Nate the Great and, Hen you know, Henry and Mudge and all those series of books, The Magic Treehouse. You get them really into it where they just can't get enough. And you, what you do is there's actually seven strategies to reading. You can't get me off on a whole ta uh, tangent here, but there are, there are seven strategies. And the number one strategy to being a reader, believe it or not, is something called visualization. You play a movie in your head. And I guarantee when you read a book, if you're like me, like if you ever read like a Stephen King, The Stand or something, while you're reading that book, you have such a movie playing in your head, right? And you're going, oh, and somebody, so-and-so could play this part and so-and-so could play this part, right? You're kind of, you're seeing the movie in your head. So what we do with books is we start out with picture books, typically, and then we start to lose the pictures and there's more and more print. And then we start to go into our Chernow biographies, right? That are a thousand pages long. Well, what, what marketing geniuses have recently done, and you have kids, marketing geniuses have recently taken that, those steps, going from pictures to print, and now they've actually, and part of this, I'm going to, the only word I could really use here is they've retarded, slowed down the progress. And what they have now is graphic novels. Graphic novels have completely slowed down kids' ability mm. to visualize because now they have like three words on a page with pictures for kids in fifth grade. They've completely backed them up to a stage that they previously were on so they could sell toys and games and pictures or whatever it might be. It's all a marketing ploy. And when you see these books and you do the research behind them, there's a great guy, and I'm going to drop a great name. There's two, two great reading gurus in my life. One is Dr. Peter DeWitts. He's in Charlottesville. He's a genius. He's helped me, you know, immeasurably. And there's another guy out of the University of Chicago um, uh, called Timmy, Timmy, Timothy Shaughnessy. He's a great, great doc, a great reading teacher over there. And he 
and Dr. DeWitt, the both of them have given me an amazing amount of background. And, you know, it's made me a better instructor as well. And when I was a principal, but it's a, it's a passion, Joe, it's something literacy. When you tell the story of the Frederick Douglass escaping slavery, if you ever read his personal stories and how he wrote, did, did you, I'm sure you've read that. The language he used is so elevated compared to what we currently use. I mean, we can't even, we can't even aspire to the language he used as someone that came to literacy later in life. It's yeah. and yeah. and who was born into slavery and and well, actually, I don't think he was in the Senate when he died, but he he went up to the federal Congress from being a slave, which is, and he nearly became the vice president. By the way, yeah. I, oh, they say Timothy Sean, it's Timothy Shanahan, so the guy from the University of Chicago, and he has, he actually has a thing that he'll send you for free every day. He's got these reading tips every day. So there are folks out there like that. But you're right. He is. He could have been Lincoln's second vice president mm -hmm. if Lincoln had so chose. So it would have been great. Think of how life would have changed for all America had that have been the case back then. So, you know, I'm glad that you went off on the tangent because um, I have a similar tangent. And, and, you know, we met and we just had so much in common. I'm so glad that we that we got together. But. Reading is the thing that will set people free. I, um, you know, one of, one of my favorite memories of my children, I have four, just two of them are pictured here. Um, but I think at the time, I think they're five and three. Um, and, you know, this was a regular scene because, you know, I was waking up really early for work and the kids aren't making a lot of noise because mom's still asleep or, or whatever, or mom and baby. Um, so my son would read to his little sister who couldn't yet read. Um, so we're not quite on your level. They, they weren't reading by three, but four yeah. or five, uh, four mm -hmm. or five. Well, that's they've they've got to know how to read. Yeah. Um, and to read books like this, this is a magic school bus book, um, which we, we have to read. We have to teach them a lot about the stuff in the magic school bus books, because a lot of it's not accurate. It's uh, also that... difficult to read. It's difficult because of the way it's laid out. It's yeah. Kind of like a circle pattern rather than left to right so it's yeah ex exactly yeah but um now you know now they're what are they eight and six and four and then the baby mm -hmm. um but they're just reading just books no pictures they're reading boxcar kids they're reading um you know little house on the prairie books and it they're voracious about it and they stay up like they stay up and play and, and mm -hmm. get uh, in trouble because they're not going to bed. But oftentimes uh, they stay up long past their bedtime uh, for, you know, an hour, 90 minutes, two hours reading and they have reading lights um, and they also wake up in the morning and it's either the options are we can play together quietly or we can read. Um, and it's just great to see both these two, those two that were pictured, they are also voracious about their bible reading and they read it in the morning and they both will read it in bed until they fall asleep um but you talk to these kids and i'm someone i i came in the faith in high school so i i needed to like i just felt like i was perpetually behind um but you talk to these kids and it's like they know the narrative of scripture and it wasn't taught to them they're reading it themselves we're reading it together as a family but they're like i can read this by myself i don't need you and they have regular adult translations of the bible 
it's crazy. Just <laughs> just them and direct access to God's word. Um, but this starts with the parents, the parent, you know, we can't count on teachers and educators. There are great teachers and educators like Mike. And there are other great teachers and educators that don't have the skills that Mike sought out and, and researched himself to know how to get reading and, and the love for literature to take to the student. You know, maybe their thing is science or math or whatever, and they're excellent at that. But as a parent, and, you know, I know my audience, most of you are parents, most of you own businesses and, and are very busy. You've got to get serious about planting a love for reading in your child's heart. Even if you're an adult and you don't read a ton, read 20 minutes a day, mm -hmm. 20 minutes a day, not on the iPad, not on the phone. There's also something different. I know, Mike, I know you know about this. There's something different about the tactile experience and how yep. it how it, the synaptic processes, processes, whichever, um, in your brain, get, get a book that you can feel and touch. I know audiobooks are great. If you're in the car, you're in the shower, and you need to use an audiobook, fine. Um, but, but get a book. Don't blow the budget. Your town has a library oh, full of free books. Whoa. <laughs> Go to the library. This book, I'm reading Grant Cardone. I didn't buy this book. I checked it out from the library. It's actually good. I'm going to need to buy this one. Um, but yeah, it's it's a good tangent to go on. We got about we've got about eight minutes. I'd love to touch on um, anything that you just like to leave the audience with. Well, you know, the, the beyond education, I want folks to understand that I'm not just a, a, a single criterion uh, politician. Uh, having been a police officer, I understand the need for safety. Um, and one of the things I was, I did without equal was harden the target of the schools I served. And so I could, that's a whole nother topic. We go into this entire thing about hardening targets, protecting children, making sure that your most, again, your most prized possession is safe when he or she goes to school. Um, but I'm also very well aware of what's going on in the world. This, these epidemics, the fentanyl coming across the border, the fact that our own president is not vested in protecting our children and our families is something that politicians have to step up and do ourselves. We need to be aware. In my district, the 28th district, I'm surrounded, my district's surrounded by four inter interstates. So you have 66, 64, 95, and 81. And it's traversed, wow. traversed by 33, 29, 250. So there's constant conduits for drug traffic, human trafficking, all sorts of things going on. And folks, there's no such thing as a border state anymore. We're all border states. And this is coming into our world and our children are at risk. Parents really need to gird their loins and get ready. We need to be ready to protect our children and elect people that really want your family to be safe. We talk about our farms. We talk about the future of our farming industry. I, I, I'm gonna represent a very agrarian area and farms are disappearing at 100,000 acres a year in Virginia. 100,000 acres. Think about it. I can't even fathom that. And they're disappearing about 2,000 acres a day. Where are we going to go? Look at the look at the drought conditions in the West, right? In the Midwest. We've been fortunate in Virginia. we got tons of rain, and our farms are fertile. But we need to maintain them. We need to protect those farmers. So we talk about that. We need to talk about young families. You're for, To have four kids, you're a fairly young fella. And and I'm hoping you're gonna I'm I'm hoping you're gonna do really well. But the thing is, there are families that my my son included. He's just a couple of years younger than you, and he's 
he can't imagine having more than maybe two. He's like, Dad, it's expensive. How'd you do it? I'm like, I don't know. I got a lot of calluses. I did a lot of side work. I said, but I wanted a big family. I only have three kids, but I wanted a big family. And we need to have, we need to encourage families and we need to support them. We're so often vested in as, as Republicans or conservatives, we're so vested in being pro-life, but we forget about life after birth. We need to be there for that kid's entire growth because if we're not, like I said before, those bad players on the left will be, and they'll be selling those kids a hill of beans. We need to be right there helping young families, helping them find solutions, developing pre-K programs, taking funding that was originally for something else and putting it into a pre-K program or giving moms, young moms, opportunities to learn how to properly do their jobs at home as far as being a parent, young dads, keeping those families together, removing taxing uh, from their personal property or giving them breaks on new mortgages. So whatever it might be, helping them a little bit here and there, getting them through so they can stay in our state. The Commonwealth has folks leaving. You know, it's it's most states that are expensive. We're pretty expensive. Have a an exodus of uh, young families. My son left. He went to West Virginia. It breaks my heart. And I, I want my grandbabies around me. I want my kids around me. But we need to make it that. Like our, like our farms, we need to provide a fertile ground for our kids to grow and raise their families and we get to be around them. It's super important. Um, so I don't want folks walking away going, this guy's just an education guy. My opponent, interestingly enough, last week, he, we're, we're, we're talking and he says, you know, there are two openings on the State Board of Education. Really? I'm going to go take that bait? <laughs> I, I, I'm that easily afraid? I'm like, no, I'm not leaving the race. I'm in it to win it. So, um, But it's, it's, it's I, just, I just want the takeaway of folks go away. I'm an energetic guy. I'm not, I mean, you know, if you look at my age, my age doesn't match the level of energy God gave me. I am pumped up. I, I really want to work for Virginia. I, I will work every day. I'm going to reinvent the, the job of being a senator. And if I could just say one more thing about education, one of the number one things I'm going to do is I'm changing it. I'm turning it on its ear, man. I'm changing the paradigm. The 180-day construct, and I think you heard me say this when you and I met, it doesn't work. You take away all the time that these kids have to take testing, handful of days for snow days, fundraising, all this nonsense. In reality, teachers are trying to teach a year's worth of uh, curriculum in about 145 days, truthfully. Now, everybody's always so invested in how are we going to compete with China? How are we going to compete with Japan? How are we going to compete with Finland? Right? <laughs> they, they go to school 130 days. Yeah, There's no contest. You know, we talk about the things that are plaguing kids. You know, now everybody's getting back on obesity and all these other things. Look at their schools. Everyday P.E., Every kid takes, you know, karate or judo. Every kid has all this activity. Their TikTok in their country is all about instruction. Ours are all about turning people into zombies. So <laughs> we, we, we really need to understand. To be competitive, we need to change our, our model and our, and our expectations. And it starts with our babies. And we get them literate. And like Frederick Douglass said, they learn to free. They'll, be for, they'll learn to read. They'll be forever free. And we will concentrate on building strong children and not fixing, you know, broken adults. And that's critical. Couldn't agree more. 
Guys, the website is Allers for Virginia Senate. Go there, learn about Mike, and don't forget about supporting his campaign. See this magic button in the top right that says donate? It's a real button, and you can donate real money that you uh, worked hard for to earn, and you can feel good about it because Mike knows that you worked hard for your money, and if you donate it to his campaign, he's going to work hard for you. You do not need to be a Virginia resident to donate, folks, but there are campaign limits. I've been out of the campaign finance world for about a year at this point, so I don't remember what the limits are. They, it might be 5900 per individual or something like that. Uh, the the uh, SEC, FEC, they will let you guys know if you screwed it up by giving too much money. But hey, that's a good problem to have giving too much money to a campaign um not a one trick pony guys he's he's got a ton of really good thoughts policies and implementation we're talking uh safety and security when we're talking education taxes uh you know protecting the first amendment and so much more go to his website click meet mike and you can see some of those policy issues uh mike i can't thank you enough for coming on it's just been a pleasure I can't thank you enough for having me. God bless you. Uh, I, I, I so you exude such faith, and I'm so happy that folks like you are out there and raising four kids. So, <laughs> thanks. Thank you for bringing such wonderful things into our future. I really it's, appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If that was the first prayer you've ever prayed, I hope it won't be the last. Until next time, this is The Joe Mobley Show.